Welcome to Jewelry Artists, where we examine the art and business of making jewelry. Join me for intriguing conversations with jewelry artists who will inform and inspire you. I'm Katie Hacker, your host. My guest today is Pete Leiba, and Pete is an expert on turquoise. He lives in the American Southwest, and he grew up in the jewelry business. And it's really fun talking with him about different types of turquoise. You're going to like this one. Pete, I'm so happy to have you here on the show today because a lot of our guests have said that their favorite stone is turquoise. And I know it's something that you know a lot about, so I'm excited to hear more about the stories behind the stones. Well, thank you, Katie. Thanks for inviting me to be on your show. I hope that uh, your listeners will find it interesting. I know they will. Tell us how you got started in the business. Well, back in the late 60s, my father uh, decided to start a jewelry business. I was probably in junior high at that time. And so I sort of grew up in the business. He had a store and he decided he was going to manufacture jewelry. And then uh, probably after a year or two of doing that uh, and a couple of partners that didn't work out all that well, uh, he came home one day and he says, we're not manufacturing jewelry anymore. We're going to be brokers. And so uh, we started buying from the artists and uh, taking it to our customers in uh, faraway places and uh, giving them a source of authentic Native American jewelry uh, to sell to uh, their customers. And so uh, with that, the starting point, you know, I worked in the store until I graduated high school. And then at that time, I went away to college near the town. I went to to school in Las Cruces, New Mexico, and uh, my father opened up a business uh, in El Paso. Uh, It was a retail store in the airport. So I worked that store. And then uh, as time went on... Was that while you were in school? That's while I was in school, yes. Uh, I managed that store. Oh, cool. And then when he uh, had... um, opportunity to open another store in Albuquerque. Uh, my girlfriend lived in Albuquerque, so I jumped at the chance to, um, to, to run that store. And then uh, when we decided to get married, we said, well, let's, uh, let's move back to where we're, the hometown we're from, which is Gallup, New Mexico, uh, to raise our family in a smaller town, not really like a city town. And mm-hmm. uh, from that point, I began selling jewelry on the road, and uh, doing trade shows. Oh my gosh, I'm familiar with that life. Yeah, and uh, luckily my wife was already pretty used to it, uh, me being uh, traveling uh, pretty much. And so uh, when it was all said and done, I've done literally hundreds of trade shows and uh, quite a few road trips and uh, been exposed to Native American jewelry and turquoise uh, throughout that time. So uh, it's sort of a osmosis type thing. You absorb these things without uh, ever really thinking you are, but uh, you end up with a nice little cache of knowledge. And so. Um, and a anyway, collection, I'm sure. And collecting all along the way. That is, that is true. And uh, now I'm working with uh, the last 15 years, I've been working with uh, Thunderbird Supply Company in Gallup and uh, as a wholesale manager. 
and uh, it was a good fit because a lot of the people that I had been buying from now I'm selling to. So oh, really? Uh, That's interesting. The, yeah, the relationships are all there. The trust is all there, and it was it was really a good fit. Yeah. Well, there in Gallup, so, you're only less than twenty miles to the Navajo Reservation. Is that right? Or Navajo Nation? Yeah. That's correct. That's mm-hmm. correct. And also, we're about 30 miles from the Zuni Reservation. Oh, okay. And the, well, the Pueblo. And um, so that was primarily the source of the jewelry we sold, uh, primarily Navajo and Zuni. We also uh, carried uh, the Rio Grande Valley uh, jewelry like uh, Santa Domingo, Acoma, uh, Zia. And those, and as well as uh, Hopi, Hopi jewelry and pottery and um, Kachina dolls. So um, it 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 was. It's been a it's been a really, I, for lack of a better word, it's been an artful life, and I'm very happy for that because uh, I love making art and enjoy looking at art. And um, anyway, it's been it's been a it's been good. It's been real good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good to hear. I know you're a silversmith, right? So, you know, and I liked what you said about osmosis and how you can hardly live in a place like where you live and not fall in love with turquoise. I mean, it's everywhere. That's correct. Yeah, that is correct. Tell us a little bit about the history. I know you're a turquoise buff, having been around it for so long, and that it has a lot of history. One of the things that I I was, um, I guess I never really really quite put together was that, you know, turquoise is from the same mountains for a long way. So it's not a surprise that there's different kinds come out of different parts of the States and other countries as well. Right. Well, as far as the history of, of the turquoise, you know, turquoise has a long history of reverence from humans throughout history. You know, uh, way back when the Egyptians were around, they used turquoise to embellish their gold their jewelry, uh, they made beads out of it. And then even when they when they discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, uh, there were turquoise in that tomb. And, um, mm. you know, that, so that goes back as far as like 1300 BC. So, uh, you know, and, and then uh, another ancient uh, people that used a lot of turquoise were the Chinese. They have a history of use in jewelry, objects of art, and they have many sources of stone which look similar to our turquoise here in North America. And um, there's a place, the Hubei province in China, that uh, they have uh, many turquoise mines, a real high quality of uh, spiderweb turquoise. And uh, in some cases, very much uh, like looking ju- uh, turquoise that we have here in the Southwest. So, um, you know, that's part of the history. And then also the Anasazi people who were around about, I think they were around, started around 200 BC. They used some of the areas that are still being mined for their uh, turquoise, like uh, Fox Turquoise in Nevada, uh, Cerrillos, the Cerrillos mine in New Mexico, and the Manassa mine in Colorado. Those are all have ancient ties. And when they find artifacts, sometimes in their little jars and things that they dig up, they'll, they'll be some of the turquoise from those mines. So, and it's um, still being you know, mined today. 
And some of them are still being mined today. Wow. And some of them are not, but some of them are still being mined. And so, um, anyway, they um, they they were turquoise was used in the trade routes uh, with Mexico and South America. They liked our turquoise. It was used by the Aztecs, and um, and they the trade routes could be verified by uh, parrot feathers. Uh, they had parrot feathers down in Mexico and Central America, and they would trade for turquoise. Uh, and even today, in the ceremonies that our modern-day natives use uh, or perform, uh, they use those parrot feathers. Uh, they still use parrot feathers from down there. So hmm. um, there's there's a long history of trade and trade routes uh, with turquoise um, throughout North and South America. We had a guest on this series uh, who's mentioned that she likes turquoise because she thinks it's kind of like people. You know, the different types of turquoise look different depending on where they come from. And I hadn't really considered that before. I like that idea and that idea that it could be used for trade over, in the, you know, in the ages. I have a really beautiful piece of Hubei turquoise that I love. It's so gorgeous. What do you think yes. pe draws people to it? Well, I think there's a real connection with, with stones. And, uh, you know, this I kind of learned kind of recently in life. Um, you know, uh, my son began selling stones and got interested in them and he, he buys them rough and cuts them into cabs and, and sells, uh, to artists at various shows and what have you. And one of the things that I noticed was he wasn't just selling to, uh, artists and silversmiths. Uh, he was selling to everyday people and, and there's this connection with the stones that um, some of the stones never make it into a piece of jewelry or a piece of art. They, they end up sitting on a shelf or sitting on someone's desk so they can look at it or maybe in their pocket. But uh, I noticed that there was a draw from not just the artists, but from, uh, you know, other people that wouldn't be considered an artist. And so I kind of put two and two together. And, and I think that, you know, when you, when you look at a timeline, of how long the human race has been on this planet, you know, the biggest area is um, the Stone Age. So, you know, you have the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Industrial Age, the Information Age, etc. And um, the, the biggest uh, period of time is the Stone Age. It's like 3.4 million years on that timeline is the Stone Age. So I think that, you know, dealing with stones and having to find the right ones for the right job through all that time period, I think it's kind of gotten into our DNA and we have a reverence for it that goes deeper than, than uh, just uh, what's on the surface. And so I, I really noticed in people that there was a kind of a magnetism or a real reverence for the stone. And so uh, I can relate it to some other things in human life, but, but, but I think it goes really deep into our, into our psyche and our, our history, you know, because all that time of finding the right stone with the right properties, maybe the right color, uh, it's, really, uh, it's really gotten deep into our, our uh, soul. So, I um, totally agree. 
Yeah, and it's so funny I, I, when you look at a tray of a tray of cabs, for example, you know, there are always the ones that speak to me. You know, it's not just it's not just a random box. It's never a random tray of stones. You know, I always find a friend in there somewhere. Yes. Yes. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, different stones are more attractive to certain people. And there's as many for as many people out there as there are. There are stones that that they will like, and uh, so you know that's something kind of new that I've I've noticed about um, how people have a real liking for uh, turquoise and and really all different types of stones. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell us about some of the different types of turquoise. I know that often they're named after the mine that the stones come from. Yeah, there there are um, there are turquoise that uh, well, for instance, probably the most popular uh, and widely used stone right now is uh, a material that's coming from the Kingman mine. Mine, and as I was preparing for this, I was kind of trying to think, well, why? And it's I, I really think it's because they have such a variety of yes look looks that come from that particular mine. They have uh, some of it has uh, a, a blue sky blue turquoise with a black matrix that goes through it. Uh, others have more of a tan colored matrix, and then there's some that are that are very um, that are very pure, you know, in blue. And so that's why I think that that particular mine has um, been so popular. But um, there are others. There, I'm are, a big fan too of see, the green. I really love that green Kingman too. Yeah, and it does vary from it varies from blue to green, and um, anyway, some of the other stones that uh, I think are very popular right now is uh, there's uh, stones like um, oh let's see the lander there blue with, is I know one of yeah. the one of the most highly sought after ones. Yeah, well, uh, Lander Blue is probably the most expensive uh, turquoise on the market, and uh, there's there's a few factors that determine the value of the turquoise. Number one is the look. Number two is probably the hardness, because that affects the ability uh, to take a polish, and uh, and then probably one of the most important things is scarcity. And uh, you mentioned Lander Blue. That is probably considered one of the most expensive turquoise, domestic turquoise in the United States. Uh, it comes from the Lander mine in Nevada. And uh, I believe there was only like 110 pounds of the high-grade turquoise that, was, that came from that mine. Wow. And so, so the scarcity of that has really run the price up. And uh, if you can imagine this, uh, right now, good Landers Blue, the market is $250 a carat. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't believe these numbers, but I can tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a story. My father, when, when the guys from the Lander Blue mine uh, struck turquoise, they came through Gallup thinking, hey, Gallup's this place that makes a lot of jewelry and we can sell this uh, Landers turquoise in uh, in Gallup. So they came to Gallup, and they were selling it for a dollar a carat back then. And uh, 
you got to keep in mind that most turquoise at that time was probably less than 25 cents a carat. Oh, wow. So it was, it was pretty expensive right from the beginning. And uh, it had a look to it that was very unusual compared to most turquoise. It was a, it's a deep blue and it's, uh, it has a real dark black matrix and it's uh, just gorgeous. And uh, so uh, it looks really good in 14 karat gold or, you know, gold settings. And so um, anyway, these guys came through town and they stopped at my dad's store and they, you know, tried to sell him some. And he was a little skeptical because of the price more than anything. So he told them, um, can you go around and see if you have any luck? And if you don't have any luck, come on back. So they did. They went around town. In fact, recently I've talked to a couple of old timers that they remembered when they came around. And <laughs> so anyway, they, they didn't do well. Number one, the price was high. Number two, it looked kind of unlike anything else that had been on the market. And so um, they asked my dad if he could buy a few pieces and to, so that they could get gas money to get back home. That's how bad it went for him. Oh boy, so, you know, that's bad. So, so he bought a little tray of turquoise and he um, mostly set it into gold settings over the years. And, uh, you know, he passed away about five years ago and uh, mom needed a little money. And I said, well, you know, dad's got this Landers turquoise here. And uh, I said, why don't you let me see if I can sell a little bit for you? So, so I did. I went out and I showed it around. And I asked a lot of questions from some very knowledgeable people. And um, I was able to sell a few of those pieces. And uh, at $250 a carat, Ooh. which shocked me because... Uh, you know, you hear these things, but uh, here was proof, you know. And uh, so anyway. I would say that's um, a lot of interest over the years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You did pretty well there. We did. We You're did right. Very it well does look that. so and different. And there, there's still a few pieces that we have left in our collection. Nice. But, um, but anyway, that uh, sort of gives you an idea on the scarcity uh, side. You know, as far as that that product goes, some of the others that are notable are, um, you know, the Sleeping Beauty turquoise, which is uh, in the last five years. Now, that's a that's a turquoise that's a, a sky blue that's very pure. There's no it's inclusions. So there's no uh, webs or anything in it. Uh, and our our uh, Zuni um, silversmiths really liked it because they do mosaic work. And uh, they would rather have a solid blue color than to have to deal with, um, you know, uh, matrix or inclusions in these designs they're doing of animals and uh, spiritual figures. And so uh, that that really worked well for them. Well, the price on that has uh, the scarcity has caused that price to to really go up and in. I would say it's probably, oh, in some cases it's gone up tenfold of what it was 10 years ago. And so there's because real, there's just not too much of it around. There's not much of it around. And uh, they've tried a few different uh, types of turquoise to try to replace it. And uh, so they and it, it it doesn't 
the things that they've tried haven't really panned out. So um, they're having because to... Because it doesn't look the same or because of where it comes because, from? Or... Because it doesn't look the same. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, um, so they're struggling with that, and they've found some uh, things that they can substitute. But that's another one that's uh, real notable as far as uh, the value and price going up. But um, anyway, so so that's that's the Zunis and uh, and the, and Sleeping Beauty turquoise. But there's there there are literally lots of others, you know. Um, uh, some of the other that are that considered really good are like Lone Mountain Turquoise. The number I've seen eight mine. Um, number eight, yeah. Yeah, the number eight mine, uh, which was real popular in the early, in the late sixties and early seventies, actually mid seventies, I think. Um, and and that's like a real, it's more of a pale blue and. Um, and it has a very tight matrix. Now the old stuff that was around, it was, um, it had black matrix, very very attractive, and uh, and 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 it it was another one of those that was the rarity that really pushed up the price on it. And uh, just recently, within I'd say the last five years, somebody found a whole bunch of that stuff, and it's it's uh, going around the market. It's a little bit different. Instead of uh, having that deep black matrix, it has more of a golden matrix or a lighter gold color. Hmm. But uh, you can still really recognize the characteristics of the matrix uh, from the mine. But, uh, you know, just as an example, you know, some of these uh, turquoise uh, mines, they, they had what they would call their scrap pile. And then they had which what was their high grade that they would pull out. Well, the things that ended up in the scrap pile eventually became good stuff, you know, as the other Once stuff Once the mines stopped out. producing so much, you mean? Right, right. And uh, I'll give you an example on that. Uh, Royston turquoise, which is a real, it's kind of a mixture of blue and green, you know, and uh, they come in pretty big pieces of turquoise. Well, that scrap pile, after, when Royston kind of... Uh, uh, wasn't being found and was getting scarce that scrap piles they started looking through it and uh, what was thrown aside it might have just a little strip of high-grade turquoise in in the whole piece you know and so they started cutting it so that they'd get this round or oval piece or whatever the case may be and then it would have a strip of high-grade turquoise going through it and so they, they named it they they named it Royston Ribbon, and uh, it's been a very popular turquoise. It sells very well; people love it. But it came from a scrap pile, you know. And I I I almost think that uh, the number eight, the stuff that's showing up now, might have been stuff that was put aside as uh, you know not as beautiful, and uh, now it's resurfaced. It's and all about so perspective, huh? It it is a lot about per perspective. You know, it's uh, it's funny you say that because, uh, you know, uh, there's there's turquoise that comes from from Mexico and uh, it tends to be uh, used more in the lower price point market, more for uh, production jewelry that, you know, they're, 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 it's not individual pieces. And mm -hmm. um, for some reason, you know, 
it only carries a well it carries a lower price than some of the things that are on the US side of the border but when you think about it the mountain range that comes from Nevada where most of the mines are the mountain range goes down and through Arizona and then you have your Bisbee and your and some of these other turquoise that are that are very popular uh through there uh Sleeping Beauty uh Kingman Marenzi those are a few that come from Arizona and then if you continue down the uh mountain range uh you cross into Mexico and there's several down there that are that are really beautiful that are just coming out Sonoran turquoise which is a green and a blue mixture that with a gold matrix it's oh, nice. very beautiful but um you know for some reason people uh expect that turquoise to be less expensive than the US turquoise you know and uh uh it goes back to perspective you know but it's the same mountain range that goes from Nevada down into Mexico, you know, so. It would be fun anyway. to look at a map and see all the different places where turquoise is mined along that range. Just that, to kind of that, get an idea, you know. Yes, definitely. So, um, you know, a lot of it is perspective. Uh, but there's, you know, there's so many different types that uh, there's probably something that would appeal to just about anybody. I think uh, I like all of them. <laughs> yeah. Can't help myself. Well, what about you? Tell me about um tell me about some of your favorite turquoise or your favorite jewelry. Okay. Well, Landers Blue is hard to beat. That that's that's gorgeous, but uh you know, I would have to say my favorite. Now, are we talking stone or are we talking turquoise? We're sticking Oh, my wow. favorite my my favorite stone wanna... Well, my favorite stone is opal. And, oh, nice. Uh, uh, I would, if you put a diamond and an opal in front of me, I'd go for the opal probably every Ooh, time. That's high praise. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, but no, there, there's lots of turquoise. There's, there's uh, this one turquoise. It's, it's called Ithaca Peak. That's probably one of my favorites. And it's a deep blue, sky blue color, kind of like Sleeping Beauty, but it has these pyrite inclusions in it. And uh, so you have this, uh, when it's polished, it looks like silver specks going oh, through wow. it, you know. And uh, that's that's probably one of my favorites. But, um, you know, they're, they're, there's, there's really a lot of them. They're, yeah, you know, Biz, I bet Bizby. you have quite a collection. Bisbee is another turquoise, and that one has like a deep blue with a smoky kind of matrix that isn't really defined lines. It just kind of smokes uh, like a like a smoke whiff going through the sky, and um, that's a that's a very popular, a very uh, expensive one, and very popular uh, and very rare. I, I guess I would say, uh, putting together this, uh, the, my thoughts on this that. Uh, the rarity probably becomes the most uh, important factor when it comes to value, you know. But uh, sure. I've always I've always said that a good stone will sell the piece, and when I say that, I mean uh, you know you can have the plainest silver setting, but if you have a gorgeous stone in there, people will buy it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, when you're making jewelry, what kinds of things do you like to make? Well, I, I tend to be more on the contemporary side. 
And uh, I have learned, I'm all self-taught, but I've learned that, um, you know, when you, when you do art, if you walk through the shoes of the masters, you know, I don't call it copying. I call it walking through their footsteps and you have some of the same challenges that they face and uh, it's, it'll help in the learning process. And so there have been pieces that I've replicated in some way. And I, I don't think you can go through life without being influenced by the things you see and the things you like. And in some way, you'll pull a little bit from this thing and a little bit from that thing and and you put them together in your own way, you know, and uh, so, so uh, that that's kind of kind of the way that I've uh, learned how to make jewelry and how to design jewelry. Yeah. So well, you're in the perfect place for it. <laughs> like you said, it's osmosis. You can look around and I'm sure there are lots of ideas just floating, floating around yeah. there. Yeah. Like I told you that probably my favorite stone is opal. So what mm-hmm. I like to do is I like to incorporate opal into the more traditional designs and uh, mix it with turquoise and some of the more uh, traditional stones that are used in, in our industry. And um, I don't know, I just, I really like opal. But anyway, turquoise is uh, very popular and very uh, varied, you know, so uh, there's always something I think that... Um, would appeal to somebody. Yeah, I totally agree. There are so many different, um, like you said, there are so many different looks, styles, you know, the surfaces are different and the matrix makes a big difference in the color too. So depending on what you want to make, can you tell us about the rings that your dad made? Well, we're going back to, um, to the Landers deal. And uh, in that lot of turquoise that he bought, uh, there were two stones that stood out, and uh, they're probably the size of, I'd say, a quarter. And um, he had one made for himself, and, and it came out just beautiful. It was done by Lee and Mary Weebethy, who are both dead now, but beautiful, beautiful piece. And then he had another one made for his best friend with a matching stone. I mean, they were like twin stones. So, uh, so, so there's two of those rings out there that are just out of this world, uh, top quality lander turquoise and, um, uh, just beautiful pieces. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And you have one, right? I do have one. Yes. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And, uh, there are still a few of those pieces left, uh, that are not set, but it seemed like to me the, the little ones went because uh, the price point, you know, most sure. of those little ones were, you know, three and four, five carats. And uh, the big ones are probably more like 25 or 30 carats. So when wow. you're looking at $250 a carat and you're looking at a 30 carat stone, it's somewhat prohibitive to uh, <laughs> uh, because of price. But um, the little ones all went. Yeah. Yeah, but what a treasure, all of them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Pete. It's been such a pleasure talking about turquoise. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right, Kate. I sure appreciate it. And uh, it was nice to see you again. And, you too. Hook up with you again and, uh, and uh, see what you're up to. And uh, if I can ever help you again, I'd be more than happy to. Thank you. It sounds like we might have to talk about opals one of these days. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To see pictures, please check out our show notes, interweave.com slash jewelry dash artist dash podcast. Jewelry Artist is hosted and produced by me, Katie Hacker. We had help from Tamara Hahnemann and Merle White, with special thanks to the team at Lapidary Journal Jewelry Artist Magazine. Jewelry Artist is an interweave podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. Our podcast producer is Matthew Talisfor. Tammy Jones is our web editor and Jesse Rodriguez does our marketing. Our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer.